Amen. Good morning. You can find your place in, in Romans 15, which we'll look at um, momentarily. But we will be looking at chapter 12 again, a couple verses. We'll be looking at chapter 14 again. Uh, because in order to rightly exposit the scriptures, that is to understand um, where we're going, to understand where we are, uh, we can't forget where we've been. Amen? And that's a key to understanding Scripture. That's a key to biblical exposition. Paul's made the case that God justifies the wicked through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, that all true believers are justified by the merits of Christ. Because he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law by way of his perfect obedience. And we can rest assured that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. As a man. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is to say there's two categories of people in the world. Those in the flesh and those in the spirit. The saved and the not saved. The redeemed and the hopefully not yet redeemed. Amen? After 11 chapters of divine, sovereign, gospel, grace, and truth, Paul transitions in chapter 12 with the big word what? Therefore. Therefore, because of sovereign grace, he exhorts Christians to stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds those saved by grace, in other words, are those who are being shaped by grace. All who are saved by grace are shaped and being shaped by grace. He says, be transformed. Chapter 12, verse 1, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Remember, transformed is metamorphal, metamorphous, transformation. It's the idea of, of uh, the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. And do you remember when we were in chapter 12 that, that that phrase, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, is a present passive imperative? It's in the present tense, number one. Okay, notice this. Be transformed. Or continue to let yourself be transformed. In other words, it's a continuous action. Present tense. It's in the passive voice. He doesn't say, go transform yourself, Right? The Holy Spirit transforms us via what? The Word of God. Present tense, passive voice, but still the verb is an imperative. It's a command. Believers are not entirely passive, but we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's why we're commanded elsewhere not to quench the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit, but we are to apply the Word of God according to the Holy Spirit who's within us, who enables us to do so. 
Allow yourself constantly, in other words, to be being transformed, enabling you to test all things, discerning your Father's will. Enabled to discern the will of our Father. So this change and continual transformation will manifest itself, as Paul goes on to say, in a number of ways. Number one, it will manifest itself in genuine humility. Genuine humility. We'll have a true love for our brothers and sisters. We'll understand that we all have gifts that differ. Remember that territory? Not everyone's a teacher. Not everyone's a preacher. There's people who are servants. They serve. And we all serve in proportion to the faith that we have been granted. We all have saving faith, but there's different levels of faith with regard to these differing of gifts. We're also called to submit to government. Governing authorities are placed there by God. So fruit of the Spirit, or fruit of one whose mind is being transformed, will be punctual in paying their, the full payment of their debts. We looked at that. And we'll understand that the biblical sexual ethic, is, uh, which is fornication and adultery, they're regarded as sins. Chapter 13, verse 13. So Paul speaks of this change, as you recall, in our thinking as clothing ourselves with Christ. Clothing ourselves in Christ Jesus. Now, we are, of course, already clothed with Christ by virtue of our union with him. Okay, Our position. We're clothed in Christ. We're cloaked in the righteous robes of Christ positionally by virtue of that everlasting union. But nevertheless, we are also to clothe ourselves daily in Christ as we walk by faith. And we do this by putting to death the deeds of the flesh and daily rising to newness of what? Life. Newness of life. Walking with and being clothed with Christ, we begin to manifest the kind of behavior described throughout these final chapters of Romans. Chapter 12 to the end of the book. And that is quite simply this. Holiness and unity. Holiness and unity. The togetherness of the body. And without breaking stride, From chapter 12 and 13, Paul moved into a discussion of Christian liberty in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. There's the strong and there's the weak. We have liberty in Christ, but some people who are weak are gripped in conscience by things that God has not commanded as being sinful or wrong. In conjunction with a warning in verses 13 to 23, and that is, for the strong not to cause their weaker brother or sister to what? To stumble. That's where we've been. And then without a glitch, Paul continues this discussion of Christian unity in this, the first half of chapter 15. It's an unfortunate place for a chapter break, but chapter breaks and verse breaks aren't uh, um, according to inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were put there later by man, and some places just unfortunately have a bad break. So the flow continues. Are you with me? Paul has been building momentum. Okay, follow me. Paul has been building momentum in order to make one grand point. 
the key principle for which our unity in Christ is built upon. A description of what our unity is anchored in. Amen? That's the intro. Open to chapter 15. Please stand. And we'll read our text for this morning. The word of God reads. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You may be seated. For the Apostle Paul, nothing would be more tragic than for a congregation of Christian believers to fight over trivial nonsense. Things such as food, drink, the acknowledgement of or not, the acknowledgement of or not of certain days, traditions, ceremonies. Paul's concern has to do with unity within the church at Rome, made up of Jews and Gentiles, very different backgrounds. There were divisions. There were issues between those referred to as the strong, the mature, and those who were referred to as the weak, the immature. And the main subject was really lifestyle issues, both groups wanting their own ways and wanting everyone to submit to their way within the whole body. In chapter 14 and verse 1 and verse 3, there is to be mutual, a mutual welcoming, since both groups have been welcomed by God. If anyone's in Christ, they've been called by God, therefore they're welcomed by God. And if you've been welcomed by God, then you better welcome your brother who's in God through Christ. Notice verses 6 through 9, chapter 14. One who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, for to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The point is, there's one Lord over all, and in fact, that unified body is what Christ died to achieve. Okay? To, to obtain for himself. He died for her. 
the weak and the strong. He died for you. The bride. Therefore, verse 13, chapter 14, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That is over issues that are neither prescribed nor prohibited by the word of God. That's the context of judging. Don't judge over issues that are neither prescribed nor prohibited by the word of God. Paul's instruction by inspiration of the Holy Spirit has to do with things that have no intrinsic or inherent ethical bearing, but are things that some may have certain scruples about. And if they have them, leave them alone. But try to build them up. Things that God has not or had not at that time determined as binding laws of prohibition or obligation. That's the context. Paul's been stressing a point for which he repeats over and over again. That's why I'm repeating it over and over again. If Paul repeats it over again, I'll repeat it over again. Amen? And then you'll repeat it over again. And guess what? We'll never forget. (laughs) That is a call for action. And this is an action or a particular pursuit. Now notice, that is to say, this is to seek out, this is to chase, this is to practice, and it's in verse 19, chapter 14, the action of seeking things that make for what? Peace. The church of Jesus Christ is not to be a people who are seeking after, pursuing, chasing, or practicing conflict. And if you're visiting here, as I said last week, This is not a message because there's disunity within this body. Actually, just the opposite is true. This is where we are in the text, and we're driving it home. Amen? That's not going on here. At least to my knowledge, it's not going on here. We're just in the text. Now, sorry to say, some people within the body of Christ, not here, but within the body of Christ as a whole, actually think that conflict or creating conflict is their spiritual gift. I'm not embellishing because I actually know a fella who thinks that's his gift. He said, my gift is going to church and stir it up. If I see something wrong, I'm going to stir it up. Dude, there's the dough. (laughs) Don't let it hit you. The utmost sign of immaturity, pettiness, silliness, childishness within the body of Christ are those who regularly have some conflict, they have to have some clash or some quarrel with someone else within the body of Christ, whether it's locally or corporately or throughout the land, uh, that has to do with perhaps secondary issues of opinion, persuasion, or affiliation of thought and or conviction. That works against the work of God. Notice verse 19, chapter 4. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 20. Do not for the sake of food, and you can, implement, you, you can put in place of food anything similar to those things that we looked at in principle. Do not for the sake of food, okay, or drink, or style, or acknowledgement of not of certain days or ceremonies or whatever, do not for the sake of that destroy the work of God. Notice the contrast Paul composes between verse 19 and 20. Building up and tearing down. Destroying. In the art of demolition, 
which I love. I worked in a form of construction that had to do with demolition. And there are certain fellows that work in demolition that, 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 that put charges throughout an old building, a condemned building. And once they're done, it takes seconds for that thing to crumble to the ground. Seconds. But it takes months or years to build an edifice, a building. 2001, you remember where you were in 9-11? It took seconds for those buildings to come down. It's been over a decade in the rebuilding process. Right? We get the picture? So to destruct a building by way of implosion takes seconds. To construct an edifice or a structure takes a very long time. It's it's far easier to destroy or tear down your brother or sister through words, through messages, you name it, within the body, back talk, slander, gossip. It takes just seconds to destroy compared to edifying, building up. Edify means to build a house, to build up your brother or sister. Now, by way of Christ Jesus coming, he destroyed the works of Satan, he destroyed the works of his minions, while at the same time is building for himself a people. He destroyed the evil and he's building for himself a people, manifesting or who are to manifest his very image, i.e. the church of Jesus Christ. Hello? He's building her. We, as his, are to reflect that building up. That up building, as the text puts it. Up building. To edify. As his bride. As his body. Now, back to Paul in this writing. Since the gospel is not at stake at the church of Rome, as it was in Galatia, right? The gospel was at stake in Galatia. It's not here in Rome. So Paul's focus is not upon diligently opposing um, false teachers, but rather getting all of those within the body to, to, who rather disagree about certain things, about certain issues, to be unified in spite of them. To situate these things in context and to maintain the need for unity within the church of Jesus Christ. He gave us a warning for the strong. Don't parade your liberty in front of your brother who's gripped by conscience not to partake. Okay, Paul had a very educated conscience, amen? Paul knew he was free in Christ. He was assured that days or wine or foods or even this, meat that had been sacrificed to idols, he was free to partake. He wasn't bound by conscience not to partake. That's not unclean. Nevertheless, what did he say in 1 Corinthians with regard to meat offered to idols? What did he say? He said this. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against what? Who? Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, here's the mature Christian of all time, Paul. I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Hello. That drives the principle home, doesn't it? So here now, beloved, in the first part of Romans 15, Paul now continues to emphasize the importance of Christian unity, continuing his discussion here of how the weak and the strong 
are to relate to one another. That's why it's a bad place for a chapter break. He's just continuing on. So without breaking verbal stride at all, Paul continues his discussion of Christian unity within, within these, the first 13 chapters, uh, verses. Not of all for which we will look at this morning. Verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now this can be tough. Notice Paul's also speaking in the first person plural. He usually doesn't do that. He usually speaks in the first person singular. I, Paul, the apostle. I, Paul, the chief of all sinners. First person singular. Here he speaks rarely first person plural, suggesting the importance of this statement. Identifying himself with the strong, the mature. In the language here is emphatic. He instructs the strong. To bear with the weak, okay, with a goal. What's the goal? In turning the weak, that is, those unable to bear with the freedom that others have. The goal is to build them up into maturity. The final clause, verse 1, makes it clear. We are not to seek to please ourselves, right? The goal is to build them up. It's not to seek pleasing self. Now, think about it. It would be easy for the strong to please themselves, would it not? Stroke their egos. You ever been to a Bible study like that? People sit around stroking their egos how much they know. That's a really ugly thing to be in. Or to perhaps rearrange the church for the benefit solely of the mature and only fellowshipping with the mature. But that, Paul says that won't work. You know Why? Because look, look around and we see all the children within the church. They're young, amen? They're maturing physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But then again, on the other hand, regardless of age, throughout the body, there are those that are maturing from level to level to level. Immature, you could be a 50-year-old Christian, new to the faith, immature, baby Christian at 50, growing in maturity. So the the strong, the mature, have a responsibility to bring them up. Now, again, this does not mean that we cater to the whims and the wishes of everyone and their opinions, amen? That was clear. We made that clear. Paul made that clear. I hope I did. We covered that truth back in verse 1. You know, the immature within the church or apathetic stragglers, They're just always immature. They never seem to grow. They don't set the agenda for the church because that will stunt everyone. You know, allowing them to constantly argue over secondary matters or matters of meat and drink and days, context chapter 14. Or in our day, maintaining an eighth grade preaching level and vocabulary. Speak to them like they're in eighth grade. No. No, because I'm not going to insult the intelligence of those that are mature. The job is to bring the immature up. You use theological terms, explain them. Did I not explain antinomianism last week? Because I got a very interesting email from some guy. Very, first time visitor. Very interesting. I would love to share it, but... <laughs> because he couldn't come up with a biblical argument for any of his accusations, he attacked me. 
in the fact that I dress like a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. <laughs> you got to go somewhere, baby. All right, attack the man. Unfortunately, some, we will say this, some within the body never seem to grow up and they still talk baby talk when they've been a Christian for 20 years. A friend of mine was just converted to Christ. He's almost 50. And I will tell you what, it is a joy for me to assist him and help him understand either the basic principles of the gospel or of doctrine. It is a joy. I love it. And it actually encourages me and fires me up. However, I know another Christian does not go to this church who's been a Christian for at least 30 years and is one of the most immature Christians I know. That's not good. My wife and I, after service last week, drove up to Glendale to be with our son and his beautiful bride and their son, our grandson. And I was watching my son feed my grandson. And my grandson is six months old, whatever he is, And it is cute. It is cute to see food all over his face and milk dripping down his chin. That's cute. That will not be cute when he's 15. And that certainly won't be cute when he's 50. Amen? Now, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, speaks to that principle. Hebrews 5. About this we have much to say. Context, the this has to do with the priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the context. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Since you have become dull of hearing. That's why it's hard to explain. Because you don't have ears to hear. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. Now, although these Hebrews were were, uh, to be well-learned, well-learned, and well-practiced in the faith, they were still like babies, infants. As frustrating as that can be, the mature cannot discard them. Get the picture? The mature cannot just leave them alone and leave them to the side and so on. Although the immature are not to set the outline or agenda for the church. Have I made that clear over the last few weeks? Good, that's good, good. I know I have, that's why I said it, John. And I know he would give me the eye. (sighs) When the gospel's not at stake which is not in Rome, he puts people over principle, or uh, 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 people over uh, gospel truth. In other words, the subjective over the objective. Now, when the gospel is at stake, let the dogs loose. You bring your most equipped men who know the most, and you fight the fight. But here in this context, he puts people over the principle, the subjective over the objective, For the sake of edifying, building up, building up. Okay, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Now, what's the main principle of the Christian life? Is it to please man or is it to please God? To please God. No doubt about it. We all know this. Nevertheless, big nevertheless here. 
To do that which is pleasing to God, here in the context of Romans 14 and 15, to please God here is the caring for and serving of one another within the body of Christ. For the sake of what? Big U word, unity. Unity, for the sake of unity. And in verse 3, now, beloved, at verse 3, we now arrive at Paul's key point. Notice the first word of verse 3. Four. This is big. This is big time. Listen again to verses 1 and 2 so that we can feel the full weight of what he's saying. But also remember the accumulated weight and thrust of chapter 14. Everything that we've studied over the last two weeks or so. Remember the thrust. Remember the content of chapter 14. Listen to the words of verses 1 and 2. And then 4, the word 4 will make a lot more sense. Okay, all the content of verse 14, chapter 14. We come to chapter 15, verse 1. We who are in strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, that is to edify. To edify is to, to fortify or strengthen. So with that, in chapter 14 behind it, there's great force of momentum as we and, and in, and, um, move into verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. That's a big four. Do not please yourself because Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Which is to say, the ground of all this talk of unity, the strong not belittling the weak, right? The weak or the immature not judging the strong, more mature believers with regard to their liberty. The strong not causing the weak to stumble. Here, Paul says, is my main point. The main thing I'm saying is something that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, upon which... Our unity together is built upon. That's a big four. This is not some abstract ideal. This is not some abstract command. Now, at first glance, when you read verse 3, some will interpret it as a kind of you know, WWJD formula. You remember that from the 90s? The bracelets, what would Jesus do? Very popular for a while. Those fads come and go. You know, as, you know, as though it's a kind of moral example that, that Jesus led is that we're to follow. That's not the idea. Instead, this verse defines for us something Jesus did. Something Jesus did, which is the foundation of what we have and who we are. That's the four. It's a big four. This is a description of what our unity together is anchored in, beloved. This is deeply anchored unity. Now, when I talk about anchor, don't think of a boat anchor. I want you to think of a, a bolt shaped like a J that's about six inches in diameter, threaded. It's shaped like a J, about two and a half feet long, shaped like a J. And when you're pouring concrete in a foundation, you stick that in there and you pour that concrete into it. And there's all kinds of rebar and steel tied together underneath that you can't see. And then you take a big steel beam 
with a big old hole in it, and you set it on top of that J-bolt, and then you bolt it down, and then the whole edifice, the whole building is built upon that foundation. Anchored. That's the anchor that I want you to see. That is what, and that is how, the church is anchored to its foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what he did in our place. What he did. And what came as a result is a people of God for God. Unified in the Son of God. Get the picture? To that end, Christ died and lives again. That's the ground of our unity, and that is Paul's key point. Can't say it enough. Verse 3 again. For Christ died not to please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. All directed to Christ. Now, who read this morning? Ryan read. Ryan read. He read from Psalm 69. Notice the last part of the verses in quotation marks. Paul's quoting this part of Psalm 69. This is, as he said earlier, a great messianic psalm penned by David, talking about the fact where many around him were speaking reproach fully, that is, in a dishonoring, belittling, and condemning way. Here, David, because of his association with his Lord, those reproaches, he said, were, that were directed towards God, fell on me. That's what David experienced, personally. Paul quotes that verse, applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly indicating that it was ultimately and prophetically about Christ all along. A greater fulfillment of that truth. By the way, seven of the 36 verses in Psalm 69 are cited in the New Testament. Because it's a psalm about the suffering Christ. It's a psalm about the self-denial of Christ. It's a psalm about the Christ becoming a sin-bearer and a substitute. It's a psalm that recalls how Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, spat upon, how he was denied, how he was slandered, how his enemies... And his own brothers were estranged, or looked at him as being estranged from them. His own brothers. Remember, they were unbelievers until the resurrection. And he was criticized by the religious rulers. A prophetic psalm fulfilled every time they accused our Lord of being born of fornication. Remember the virgin birth? They knew that Mary wasn't impregnated by Joseph, so they accused Jesus of having been born of fornication. Those reproaches fell on him. It was fulfilled every time Jesus cast out demons, and his accuser said, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the devil. This psalm was fulfilled when he hung on the cross, and, and they chided him, saying, if you're the son of God, come down and save yourself. Fulfilled. Time and time again. Meaning all of the enmity, all of the rebellion, all of the blasphemy, all the iniquity of sinful men that has ever been directed toward God, towards God fell on Christ. 
That's the price that was paid for us to be unified. You get it? So as a result, all of God's appropriate and due justice against sin also fell on Christ. Do you see what's going on here? So Jesus steps in and he stands between holy God and sinful man and he gets it from both sides. He bore our sin on his body, on the cross, in his body, on the cross, and as a result, bears God's hatred against that sin in his body, on the cross. Rejected by man, rejected by the Father, as he hung on the cross for you, the church. That's the anchor of our unity. Consequently, rescuing, redeeming all who come to him and trust him by faith, reconciling us to the Father, creating a new body of people, unified as one, anchored in the Son, otherwise known as the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a big four. Amen? That's a big four, F-O-R. Jesus did not come to please himself. Had he pleased himself, he would not have gone to the cross. In fact, in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus declared that the very purpose of his messianic ministry is to do the will of his Father and not his own will. And what did he pray? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Cup of what? Wrath. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he made himself of no reputation. The Son of God. He humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even that of the death of the cross. Death of the cross. This is our blessed Lord who denied himself again and again and again. He lived for those whom he came to die for, shedding his blood. That's his bride. That's you. That's his church. Providing atonement, providing reconciliation, willingly receiving these reproaches. Willingly. Submitting himself to the will of the Father. Pleasing the Father. Redeeming us. That's the anchor. Notice what he does in verse 4. Paul does in verse 4. For whatever was written, notice this now. Talks about the reproaches of Christ. Verse 3. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have what? Hope. In other words, in other words, the gospel isn't something that showed up in the New Testament. Beloved? The gospel didn't, just didn't show up. With Jesus. Did you know that? The Bible's made up of 66 books. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. 39 books, if you will, of promise. 27 books of fulfillment. 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, All Scripture. What Scripture? 
All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Which means we're still instructed by what's known as the Old Testament. Right? Now, we're, we're instructed by it, but we're not bound by it. Right? We're not bound by it as Israel was bound to these certain dietary laws, ceremonial laws, days, feasts. That's the issue that he's been addressing. Chapter 14. We're no longer bound by kosher laws or days or the theocratic rule of Old Covenant Israel. The instruction we receive from the, old, text, from the uh, old Testament with context to dietary laws is to show us that God established himself a people long ago and he set them apart. One of the ways he set them apart was by way of these dietary laws. Very distinct, very clear, showing the world, these are my people, they're set apart, and they are to be a light to the nations. demonstrating the fact that these are a distinct people. So again, our unity as the body of Christ is anchored way back in the Old Testament. The promises given then are realized here in the New Covenant. God said, I'm going to send a Messiah. And what? And he did. Way back. Chapter 3 of Genesis. He says, I'm going to send a Redeemer. And he did. He said, I'm going to call a people to myself, and he did. He said, I'm going to call a people to myself from all the nations of the world, and he did, and he is doing. He said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, and they are. See? Anchored way back. Promised in the Old Testament. So again... He says, through endurance and through the, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, hope in what? In the great objective reality that the one promised to bear our sins came and bore our sins. Amen? Do you rejoice over this, beloved? So we're seeking to be, we're seeking as Christians today uh, to, to find fulfillment in the word of God rather than personal goals. Three steps to a better this or th- four steps to a better that. Right? Right. right? right? Read the text and you see the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. Promise after promise after promise fulfilled in Christ alone. The veil's been lifted. You see. That's a Jewish school. They don't see. They can't see unless God lifts the veil. Divine, sovereign grace. Ran into friends yesterday I haven't seen for 15 years. I was blessed they're still married. They can't see. They can't see. You spoke for 45 minutes? Outside of the biggest gang store in the world, Walmart. <laughs> Meaning, when you go into Walmart, you think you're going to buy one thing, and you buy 10, you get mugged by Walmart. <laughs> That's what I mean by gang. 
and you, you, you drive away rejoicing that you can see. And I didn't do anything to be able to see. That's the point. That's the point. So what will I do now? I'll drive over to their house and pay a few visits now that I know where they live. With the hope of what? Testifying. That God may in his grace enable them to what? See. You can see. You're able to look at the scriptures and see the promises of the Old Testament. You can see Isaiah 53. And Jewish people, as John MacArthur calls Isaiah 53, the death chamber of every rabbi. How can you not see Christ in Isaiah 53? You can see. You understand the Old Testament promises fulfilled in Christ. So don't look at the scriptures, you know, let me see God's promise for me today. Uh, And then read something out of context. Read it in context and see the fulfilled promises of God come to life. Amen. All those Old Testament saints, Hebrews 11.39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Those, those saints under the Old Covenant were anticipating a greater future, a much greater future, much greater than just a sliver of land. They only saw the preliminary glimpses of what God promised. Something better for us refers to the new covenant realities, those promises fulfilled and magnified in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The scriptures, all of the scriptures, they give us hope that the God who promises always comes through. Always. So because of this, that's the big four in which we're united as one. And we're united even with those Old Testament saints. So scripture gives us hope. Gives us endurance. Notice the text. And encouragement. You know, scripture tells us that we can endure every, what? Trial. That's what scripture says. The Bible says that with every temptation, God leaves the way of escape. That's a promise. So when temptation comes, there's always a way of escape. You might have to turn around and run the other way, but that's a way of escape. You ever have to run from temptation? Yeah. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And temptation in itself isn't sin. We're all tempted. That's not sin. It's falling prey to the temptation or or giving in to the temptation that it becomes sin. That's why we repent. That's why we confess. We have a hope that the world does not know of. They can't understand it. It's anchored in the word of God. It's anchored in Logos. It's anchored in Christ. And we're anchored together. So we should be unified as one because we're in the one who came to redeem us. And make us what? One in Christ. Now, so he gives us this eternal perspective with regard to anything. Trials, troubles, tribulation. You know, he, divine, he gives for us a big picture of maintaining unity within the body of Christ. And then Paul brings this unity down to a tangible, applicable reality in verses 5 and 6. Notice. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with what? Go ahead. One another, brothers, sisters, in accord with 
Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking of harmony that grows out of the unity that's been purchased for us. Harmony that's been purchased. So we're to sing in tune, if you will. Harmony, whether you have a voice or not. Not literal singing, but living in harmony. Now, this harmony, beloved, doesn't mean that we have the exact same preferences about every single thing. How boring would that be? Right? How boring is it? Look, I don't want to... I would go crazy if... I'm, I'm a white guy. I'd go crazy if we had an all-white church. Come on, really? Unless I lived in an all-white community, I suppose. But look around, man. This is a reflection of the body of Christ. You don't want everybody coming from the same back. What, are we going to have a church of all ex-surfers or surfers? No. This, the, the, you know, differences of eating or drinking, or, or in our day, music, or in our day, style, how we celebrate certain days or not, it's not harmony in that sense. It means that we live in accord to the same values, building one another up according to those values, made manifest by this unity. Anchored in unity by the God of endurance and encouragement. So Paul's point is that we, we need to know that everything written in Scripture is written for our learning. And one part of learning is to learn patience. And I hate that lesson more than anything. Per- personally. Endurance, right? That's patience. What is patience? It means to suffer what? Long. Suffer a long time. That's patience. Who likes to suffer long? Do you? My flesh hates that. And our flesh should hate that because our flesh works contrary to the will of God. Does it not? That's why we're called to kill it. Kill it. Crucify it. And the word of God provides us the truth which sanctifies us, which grows us in unity. Again, anchored in the one foundation, Jesus Christ, who is the word. Word? Word? Word. He's the word. Okay, now think about this. Unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes, okay, we, we, we come to a church. We visit a church. We, we want to become part of the church. But, but we feel that being part of this particular local church, that, that, that to be part of it, you know, I, I have to feel like I'm on the in. That I, in other words, have to fit a certain profile. Or I have to fit a certain demographic. And then the more that I fit the profile, the more comfortable I feel. But the less I fit the profile, the less comfortable I feel, even if that profile is a figment of my own imagination. Well, you know, most of these people come from this and they come from that. And if I don't come from this or that, I don't really feel like I fit in and I can't relate. This text puts that to death. That's what we don't want. Are you with me? This is what we don't want. Because then we pretend to be someone we're not. I'm not talking about unbelief, pretending to be a believer when we're not. We pretend to have a, person, a certain personality. 
And then it's this made-up persona that's, that's invented, or, or, or a role, or a front, or a facade. So if I don't feel as though I can fit in, then I go somewhere else until I feel like I can fit in. Amen? Are you getting me? We've had some seasoned saints visit for the last few months. I've been praying for that for seven years. Praise God for seasoned saints. We want this church made up of all 30-year-olds, myself included. (laughs) Just kidding. Lie from the pulpit. (laughs) No way. Do we want a church made up, you know, of ex-hippie Timothy Leary followers? Remember the 60s? Remember, what did he say? Turn on, tune in, and drop out, man. Do you want like a bunch of ex-hippies who they, they talk, remember what God delivered us from in the 60s, bro? Is that it? No. Do you want a church, as I said, what, made up of all ex-bikers or bikers, because that's fine. But that, you know, in, well, I don't have a bike, so I don't fit in. That would be ridiculous. That's an extreme. Do you, do you want a, a church made up of, of, of all lawyers or ex-lawyers? No. Do you want a church made up of all uh, PhDs or MDs? No. What about ADDs or ADHDs? Do you? No. We'll take PhDs. We'll take MDs. We'll take lawyers. We'll, we'll take mechanics. Amen for mechanics. Gardener, you name it. That are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who have the Spirit. Whatever they do. See, sometimes people come to a body, and this persona that I'm talking about is not made up. Because this is something that Peter did. He wanted to fit in, I feel like I fit in over here on this day, and I feel like I fit in over this day, so I'll just vacillate back and forth. And Paul rebuked him publicly. Look at Galatians 2. Verse 11, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the the circumcision party, the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul rebuked him. As I said earlier, Romans 15 verses 3 through 6 puts all that kind of thinking to death, or it should. Amen? The body's unified, yes, and we'll talk about that as I close. We're unified certain things, but we come from different backgrounds, and we have different likes and passions. And if they're not prohibited by Scripture, be free. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, in accord with what I just said in verse 3, the big four. In accord with Christ Jesus, verse 6, that together you may be, you may with one voice glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One voice, that's harmony. Okay, and here's the ground of it right here. So I'm wrapping up. Don't, don't miss this, please. The ground of which is anchored in Christ's finished work. And this creates in us three things. 
This is what we share in together, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our ethnicity. We together share in these three things. Number one, we share in a common conviction about Jesus and what he's done. We share in a common conviction about Jesus and what he's done. In company with, number two, a common confidence, that is, faith in Christ Jesus and that which he has done. The result of which, number three, is a common connection with Jesus. Now, we all have that individually, amen? But we also have it corporately, is the body of Christ. So this great theological truth now is brought down to ground-level reality of living by Paul. Verse 7. Therefore. Right? Again, therefore. Because of all this divine truth. Therefore, welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you. Why? Right there. Look at it. For the glory of God. The glory of God. So this common conviction that we all share, creates a common confidence that we all share, and a common connection that we all share in Christ, which, which translates into common care for one another. Isn't this beautiful? Can you just sit here for two more hours and we'll just keep going over this? Go for it. One more hour? No, I'm just kidding. First time visitors going, it's already been... 45 minutes. It translates into the common care for one another because this is what saved sinners look like. Sinners saved by grace, amen? This is what we look like. And he wants us to look like. And he's working in us so that we look like this. And then the God the Father receives glory that is due his name. That's called ascribed glory, Amen? Remember the difference between ascribed glory and intrinsic glory? Intrinsic glory is the glory that God has in and of himself. He doesn't need you, and there's nothing that you can do or nothing that you won't do that will detract from the intrinsic glory, the glory he has in and of himself. But here we're talking about ascribed glory. Glory that is due his name. When the people which are his purchased possession. Walk in love, having unity, that is having the same mind, the same will, the same voice. Christ having received you, having received me, is vile lost sinners. When this work is made manifest in and through our lives, God the Father's glorified. That's why disunity and slander, backbiting and all that, God hates it. Because it detracts from the ascribed glory that's due his name. It holds back that glory. And you know, your salvation is more for the glory of God than it is even for your own good. Read Ephesians 1. If you don't know that. God saving your wretched soul and my wretched soul is for his glory before it's for my own good. That's why you can't boast. You had nothing to do with it. Well, I believe that's right, but that's a gift. Glory is right. The glory of God the Father. We receive each other to the glory of God, anchored in unity. 
through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now to close, think about this. Every time Jesus referred to the Father, he called him what? Father. When he referred to the Father, he called him Father, except when he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was he forsaken? So that you can call God your father. Only if you're anchored in Christ the Son. Only. An unbeliever can't call God their father because they don't have the Son. So differences of conscience, chapter 14, differences of opinion, where scripture doesn't clearly prohibit something. Okay, you, you can talk about those things. You can even lovingly debate them. But none of those issues, none of those issues are to violate the one voice, the one mind, and the one will of glorifying God the Father for those who are anchored in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. Through whom you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's the only reason you call him Father. It's the only reason you or I have access to the Father because we're anchored in the Son. Amen. Amen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So therefore, having been saved by grace, we are also being... Say it. Having been saved by grace, we are being shaped by grace. And this is part of the process. The proclamation of the word of God, verse by verse, by verse. Amen. Father, we boldly and humbly say, Father, because we can. Anchored in the finished work of your glorious, eternal, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our one and only mediator between God, you, and man, us, sinners saved by grace. We thank you that we can say, Abba, Father. Lord, help us, we pray, to to be a truly harmonized, unified body, making manifest the reality of love and unity according to the Scriptures because of Christ, your Son, our precious Lord, who fulfilled the law already in our place. And positionally, we've already loved our neighbor as ourselves because of Christ. So help us, by the power of your Spirit, to do so practically, day by day, by faith. The weak, upholding, or the strong, rather, bringing up the weak. And the weak, not being quick to condemn the strong, but wanting to grow in grace together as a body under the head, Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray.
Amen.